what a big week. It's, it's Holy Week. It's Easter week. Again, people all around the globe are, um, th- this week is a week of focus with Easter coming. And we've got several things. One, we are, the Easter service next week, we always have a lot of people. There's people who are willing to show up in an Easter service that won't show up any other time of the year. So I really want to challenge you, grab a card and make a commitment this week to invite one person who you know to come next week. We're going to talk about Jesus, who's the name above all names. We've been talking about the I am, right? How he is the I am and his resurrection. So just challenge you to bring somebody with you. Um, And then, you know, that all week they just talked about the schedule. We're going to be doing, we have a booklet that I challenge you to go through. It takes you every day. It'll take you through his journey um, from Palm Sunday through his crucifixion into his resurrection by next Sunday. And every day it has a focus because my sin is what took him to the cross. And it has a focus of a reflection to think about my sin that's what crushed him. And he was pierced for my sake, right? And what this year we're going through the seven deadly sins. So each day will be a focus on one of those. So one, one day it'll be on pride, another day on anger, another day on laziness. Um, and it'll just be a way to, to read through some scripture and ask the Lord, like, where, you know, wh- what sins am I still struggling with that took you to the cross? And just wanting to lay those before him. Thursday nights are Monday, Thursday, and don't worry about the name. I still don't forget what it means. Um, <laughs> we borrow it from higher, more high churches, but it's a great time to come and have communion on the night that Jesus had his last Lord's Supper, and just to think again about him going to the cross for us, and then Easter Sunday, uh, and Friday is a really big day. This will be our fourth year to do the journey to the cross, and it'll be in here, and we'll have stations set up all around, and it will walk you through Um, his arrest to his crucifixion, and it has some really great questions to help you think about your own life and to reflect on the different events and how, how am I like that? Like just one of them I was thinking about when the crowd is calling for Jesus to be crucified. Um, Those are the same people who welcomed him as king just a few days before. And how it's so easy to fit into the, with the crowd. And so one of the reflector, reflections will be, how, where am I fitting in with the crowd night, right now? And I'm refusing to stand up for what's right or for what's true because I, I just, I, I want to blend in with the crowd and be accepted. So it's really powerful. So I encourage you Friday. It's from 8 to 8. Just come sometime during the day. I, every year I, get, I encounter God in a new way with that. So, okay. We're, so we're continuing with our series on the names of God. <clears throat> And again, if you remember, his names describe his character. That's what a name was in their culture. And two weeks ago, we looked at the name Yahweh Tzavaoth. And it is such a, such a rich name that I decided then that what I was going to do today, I wasn't going to do because I wanted to come back to this name because there's a really powerful truth in that name that I did not hit that day. Um, so let me just do a quick review. If you weren't here, maybe you were here, but if you weren't, just a quick review. That um, word Tzavaoth, and can we say it? It's like if you say lots, that T-S. So say lots. Okay, now take the T-S and say tzaba'oth. Tzaba'oth, okay. Sorry I don't have the Sid and a canoe picture to help you remember that one. I'll be like that. I'm not that creative. Some people ask me, could I have pictures every week with these names? Um, but tzaba simply means a multitude, a great number. And it was frequently, I had military connotations. It was used, tzaba is the root word of it. It was used of a, of a group, of, of an army, a human army. It was used of... Angels, um, the angels of God, the angels of heaven. To Ahab, the prophet Micaiah said in 1 Kings twenty two nineteen, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes, all the tzaba of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. 
And Sabah is also used of the sun, the moon, and the stars. So the heavens. So he, the host of heavens, the multitude of heavens. It's all, he's Lord of all of that. So if you remember, when I summarized his name, I summarized it this way. That this name emphasizes the power and might of God and his sovereign rule over all things, whether it's armies, angels, or stars. Yahweh Tzabaoth is Lord of the multitude. God is the great king um, of the whole universe, whether seen or unseen, it's all his. That's what's inside of this name. And so if you remember, I translated, it's a hard one to translate. Um, I am Lord, Yahweh, I am Lord of heaven's armies. Scott Youngman helped me a lot with that. And then what was interesting, I preached that, and then the next day he texted me, and he said, I've been thinking a lot more, and he said, I would add one word to that that I think is important. And so he recommended it should be, I am sovereign Lord of heaven's armies. He felt I put in that sovereignty idea was important. So anyways, um, Scott helps me with a lot of my stuff. So, um, But it's a powerful name. And when I did this a few weeks ago, I, was, I saw something I never knew about this name, and I held some of my cards back. I wasn't playing my full hand that week, and I've been holding some back that I want to I wanna play today. I want to show you my whole hand. So as I set it up, let me talk about this. When people talk about God's character, his qualities, they tend to think of his, it's divided into two categories, his transcendent qualities and his imminent. His transcendent qualities are his, it's, it's his greatness. His eminence is his goodness. And those transcendent qualities are things that make him above and beyond everything in the universe exalted and high and lifted up. And the, the eminent qualities are all the things that make him close to and intimate with his universe, um, that personal connection and all of that. And some of the names we've talked about already, some fall under those two categories. Yahweh Rohi, I am your shepherd, falls under that transcendent, that closeness. El Rohi that we did a few weeks back of Hagar, I am the God who sees you, I know and I care, right? That's in his eminent qualities. And some of the names we've done so far fall under that transcendent, his exaltedness. And among them would be El Shaddai, the Almighty God, which, which Danny did a few weeks back, about a month maybe. And then Yahweh Tzabaoth, this one. I am the Lord, I am the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies. Falls more under that exalted, that transcendent category. Jeremiah 32, 18 kind of puts it there where it says, He is the great and mighty God whose name is Yahweh Tzabaoth. The great and mighty God. Now, here's why I'm setting that up. It's really important. Because sadly, I think for many people, when they think of God, they only think of that transcendent side. All they think of is this God who's way up there, who's exalted, who's lifted up, who's high above, who is the ruler of the universe. And if you think about it, it's a universe <coughs> where we live on a tiny planet, right? that resides in a small section of a rather insignificant solar system that's on the edge of a very minor galaxy among millions of galaxies, and we're one of those small ones. And a planet, my, I asked Pat to Google this for me yesterday, a planet that as far as we know right now is one of among 20 billion trillion other celestial bodies. I can't even fathom that. So I asked um, our local mathematician, Brian Hollenbeck, what would 200 billion trillion look like? And he said it would be a two with 23 zeros after it. That's how, that's how many like stars and planets that we know of are in the whole universe right now. And in comparison to that vast universe, it can be very easy to feel small and insignificant and invisible and inconsequential 
especially when we think of even our itty-bitty planet, that I'm one of 7 billion people. I mean, how small can that make you feel, right? And so I think a person could rightly ask the question, does Yahweh Tzabaoth, such a big God who rules over all of the universe, over all the stars and human armies and angel armies, does this God even have the time or the mental energy to devote to me and to my problems? Is he too busy, so busy running everything that he really can't pay attention to little old me and the little stuff going on in my life? I think it's a question people at various times in their life struggle with. And to answer that, I want to turn, I want you to turn me to the first chapter of Samuel. First chapter of Samuel. By the way, again, if you don't have a Bible, I don't have one up here, but there's some green ones on the back on your way out. You can grab it kind of under where the, the sound guys are. We would love for you to have one. You got your phone. It's early in the Bible. It's the ninth book of the Old Testament. It's First Samuel chapter 1. And I'd like you to turn there because I want to answer that question. I mean, he runs the universe, so maybe... I'm just not, he's not too interested in my little life. So let's start reading 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It's the story of a woman named Hannah, and I love this story. So verse 1, there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jer- Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth. Um, an Ephraimite. Um, you wouldn't believe how long I had to practice that. <laughs> I was at a funeral yesterday, and a guy got up to read an Old Testament prophet, and he really botched the name, and he felt terrible. And I got up and I said, yeah, wait till you see how many times I botch names tomorrow. It's not easy reading these names. Um, let me show you on a map this Ramathaim. It's called Rama in verse 19. Um, it was a very small village in the hill country of Ephraim. And the hill country of Ephraim is just north of Jerusalem. The exact site is uncertain, but they've got it narrowed down to what they think are three locations, and I've got all three up there. Two of them are about five, while, five miles north or northwest of Jerusalem. Um, you see Shiloh up there. We're going to get to Shiloh in a minute. They're about 15 miles south of Shiloh. One of them is up a little further northwest and is a town. You can kind of see it in the name. I don't know if you can read that. It's kind of small. Um, is, is the town that by the time of Jesus' time, it was called Arimathea. It was the town where Joseph came from, Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb Jesus was laid in. Um, And this is what the hill country of Ephraim looks like if you were to go there. Pretty nice, right? Um, Verse 2, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Now, let me say something before we move on. Two wives, that's interesting. Uh, I want to tell you an important principle of interpreting the Bible. Just because somebody in the Bible does it doesn't mean that it's right, okay? There's a lot of people in the Bible who do things that are not right. Just like you should not seek to infer. So don't seek to infer God's standards on marital conduct from the marital practices of people in the Bible. Just like I don't infer how good are traffic laws based upon the way people drive their cars. Does that make sense? Okay. I, I was behind one of those people today, by the way. So I got to actually live this out. Um, It's just a guy thing. Um, Okay, but it's really clear in Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates the first man and woman that he created and intended for marriage between between one man and woman, that one woman. That was his intent. In the Torah, in the law, God condemns polygamy. Um, And for the most part, 
Polygamy was not practiced only by kings and stuff. Common people rarely ever did it. This guy did. In a minute, we'll talk about why. So back to verse 2. And here's why. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Their names were reversed at the beginning of verse 2 because Hannah was likely his first wife. Hannah had none. In their culture at that time, to not bear children, they believed was a sign of God's punishment. And as such, a woman who was childless had great social stigma placed upon them. So the grief and the shame that Hannah would have borne in her culture was extreme, very extreme. And it was common in that culture that for a woman who couldn't bear children, for them to be disposed of or thrown to the side, that most divorces that would happen at that time were, were because of childlessness, that they would divorce a woman and set her aside. And once that happened, she was ostracized by the society, totally ostracized. Um, and this is likely why Elkanah had two wives. We're going to see in a minute that he really cared about Hannah. And so rather than get rid of her, he just took another wife hoping to have children through her. Um, so verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. I had Shiloh on the map a minute ago. Here is... Um, the mound that is Shiloh, the archaeological research they're doing, that's what the tabernacle would have looked like. They've even found the exact place where that was. The, they found the, the archaeological ruins of the enclosure. They even found parts of the altar, the stone altar that were there, um, which is really cool. But that's, uh, that's it. And so that was the temporary place where the tabernacle that traveled through the wilderness was until Solomon built a permanent temple in Jerusalem. So this is where they went to worship where the priests were. All right, verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. I mean, she has a lot. It doesn't say how many. So can you imagine each child how Hannah's feeling every time she gives birth? Okay, so to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Now what brought them to Shiloh was a national feast day where all the people of Israel would actually come there for that. And it would have been, probably the closest equivalent for us, would have been Thanksgiving dinner. But the difference was, it wasn't individual homes. It was everybody in the nation being in Shiloh. It would have been a giant party and a big feast and a big spread going on. And again, for Hannah, I mean, can you imagine hundreds of children running around, hearing the patter of feet, hearing children playing, that that place in particular reminded her of the reality that with all these women who had children that she had none. So verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. The New Living Translation says Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her. The New English Translation said she would aggravate her to the point of exasperation just to irritate her. You ever had that experience? Like you've, you've got some lot in your life, something you never asked for, never wanted, but it's part of the reality of your life and people make fun of you about that? I mean, we've all been there, right? Nobody likes that feeling and that's what's happening. So verse 7, this went on year after year, year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Um, again, Particularly, probably this went on at home, but when they went to this festival, she really laid into it. And, you know, we, most of us know, most for most of us, holidays are times of celebration, right? But we also know people who are in grief, that holidays can be really hard. And holidays were really, this holiday was really hard for Hannah. 
Um, and you know, because of all of this, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but she felt very small. She felt very insignificant. Somebody of little importance and no value. That's how she would have felt. So verse 8, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Didn't I, can I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost to the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed. And she made a vow saying, in the NIV it says this, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. I like the NIV. I use the NIV. In my opinion, they blew it in verse 11 because when she makes the vow, it's not the way they, it's not Lord Almighty. It is Yahweh Tzabaoth. She is praying specifically in the name of Yahweh Tzabaoth. We're going to come back in a minute why that's so important. This is, I mean, look at this prayer. It's extraordinary. Rather than just say, hey, give me a son that I can have at home and not feel bad about myself. She says, give me a son because I want to give him to you for a lifetime of service. Very unselfish prayer. Um, unlike many of my prayers, which are just you know, self-focused, right? Give me this because I just want it. I want to have it for me. Um, and she says that I'll, like, well, I, he won't cut his hair, um, that no razor will touch his head. That's probably a Nazarite vow, which you find in number six. That if somebody, the word Nazar in Hebrew means to consecrate or set apart for the Lord. That if somebody wanted to show that they were setting their life apart for God, they would let their hair grow out. And there were other things. So Samson, you know Samson with the long hair, he had taken the Nazarite vow. John the Baptist likely had taken a Nazarite vow. Most people took it for only a short time. Um, Paul probably even took one in the book of Acts. But it's usually for a short time. But she's saying, I'm giving him to you for his whole life, his whole life to serve you. So verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Um, and most commentators believe the reason he said that is because probably a lot of people were showing up drunk to the temp tabernacle at that time. In a minute, I'll show you what the people were living like back then. So verse 15, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. <clears throat> I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Uh, then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and then he went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Brother Samuel, we need to talk after the service because your name is so cool. The meaning behind it is really cool. Um, this more than I thought. Anyways, verse 21. When her husband Elkanah went up with his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. 
Do what, you, do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, which is about 36 pounds, that's a lot, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live. I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I think just to be kind, the story left out. Uh, the woman that you thought was drunk, remember me. <laughs> I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he, referring to Samuel, he worshiped the Lord there. He stayed there. He grew up with Eli, serving God at the tabernacle as one of the priests, um, helping him out. Samuel is a really significant person. We're going to spend most of our time on Hannah, but Samuel's a significant person. If you don't know him well, he would become one of the most important people in the whole Testament, one of the most important people. Um, he was one of the greatest prophets. and He was powerfully used by God. Um, at this time in Israel's history, I'm going to take a drink. Is that okay? At this time in their history, the people had utterly failed God. I'm going to show you in a minute a timeline, but this is happening during the end of the period of the Judges. And here's what it says in the book of Judges. That in those days, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Nobody gave a rip about God. They just did whatever they wanted to do. And to that I say, boy, does that sound familiar, right? And then secondly, not only were the people totally failed God, but even the priests and religious leaders utterly failed him. If you read the, the rest of chapter 2, which you will do later and not now, <laughs> you will see, I mean, the stuff they were doing was horrible. It would have made national news right now, the things the priests were doing, his, Eli's sons. But not Samuel. He didn't fit that at all. Um, God said of him in 1 Samuel 2.35 that he was a faithful priest who served him and did what he desired. That's what God said about Samuel. And Samuel would be the one that God would use to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Here's that timeline I told you was coming of Samuel. The point in history where he has. Um, you had their bondage in Egypt, how God set them free. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, the conquest of the land. That period of the judges where everybody was doing whatever they wanted. And then he was the bridge to the first kings. And Samuel was actually the person who anoints David to be king and was David's mentor. I mean, how significant of a person is that? So I'm going to come back to the big question I asked at the beginning because it's so important to me. I want to ask it again. Does Yahweh Tzabaoth, such a big God, who rules over all the universe, all human armies, all the stars in the sky, all of the angel armies, does that God even have time and the mental energy to care about me and my problems? Does he even have the time or is he too busy running everything to pay attention to me? And here's what I want to tell you in this, about this story that to me is so powerful. This story in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and that occurrence of Yahweh Tzabaoth in chapter 1, verse 11, that is the first time that this name is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's the first time that I am the sovereign Lord of heaven's armies appears. And what it, to me is profound is it appear, it, this name is said for the first time on the lips 
of a woman who's in big trouble. I mean, things are not going well for her, and she seems like an insignificant, unheralded woman, right? Insignificant in quotation mark, unheralded, totally unknown, an invisible woman from an invisible village who is just desperate to be heard. She is the first person to use this powerful name of God. Is that not cool? Um, step aside and just say one quick thing. For people who say that the Bible is anti-women, um, I would love to have a conversation. I may do a sermon on it sometime. Usually people say that. They just hear it in the culture, but it's really not true. How many times in the Bible are, the pe- are, are women the most perceptive people of who God is and what he's doing around them? How many times? I mean, the first person that the angel of the Lord appeared to, we looked at this a few weeks ago, was Hagar, a slave girl, right? Um, so, that's for another time. Hannah had suffered for many years of infertility, and then that was just exacerbated by Paniah constantly taunting her. I want you to look. I just went back and circled the words um, that were happening. These are the words that expressed her emotions. Verse 7, you know, she wept. She would not eat. Verse 8, she was weeping and downhearted. Verse 10, in deep anguish, weeping bitterly. Verse 11, misery. Verse 15, deeply troubled. Verse 16, great anguish, grief. Verse 18, downcast. Do you get the gist of her pain? How many of you know Mel? Mel sometimes plays drums or bass up here from Ghana, works with the international students. He was driving on the way up during first service with his wife coming up here. And I found out when he got here, he wanted to meet me. And so he came running back. I was just kind of resting back here. And he said, we got to talk. And he said, as we were coming up, he said, we had the service. We had it online on the phone. And, uh, and I said, and who was driving, Mel? And he said, I was. And I said, and you were simply listening, right? And then he got a sheepish grin. So uh, anyways, <laughs> Mel said, when he heard that list, he said, when I, when he, he said as, a, as, a, as a counselor, he said, those are the signs of depression. Like the, all of those lists, like that's, that's the signs of a person that's very depressed. And here's what I want you to know, that it was in the midst of those emotions, in the midst of those emotions that she made her plea to Yahweh Tzabaoth, the one who commands every force on earth and in heaven. That's who she made her plea to. It was in the midst of that situation in her life when no human advocate could be found that she called upon Yahweh Tzabaoth at the tabernacle in Shiloh and she asked him, would you fight for my cause? Use that name, Hannah. Why pray to Yahweh Sabaoth of all the names you could have picked? It was because she had an unshakable faith that her life mattered to him. Her life mattered to him. And she knew that even though he was the sovereign ruler of the whole universe, that he had the time to hear and answer the prayer of the most humble individual. That's what she knew, and that's why she prayed to Yahweh Sabaoth. Uh, Most of us don't remember John Kennedy, but we know of him. One of our most famous presidents, right? They would usually say that the president is the most powerful man in the world. You know, Kennedy, there was that the whole nuclear thing that was going on, the crisis with Cuba. He had the ability, you know, to to launch nuclear bombs. But Kennedy was also a father, and he had a young son, John Kennedy Jr. And his office was total open access to his son anytime his son wanted to come in. 
It didn't matter what he was doing. It didn't matter what was going on. It didn't matter if he was even having major consequential decisions about major issues and the weight of the world was on his shoulders. The little John could come in and he loved playing under his desk. I love the, the one up front. That's a major, that's a major meeting he's having with his, his core staff. And there he is under the desk having fun. <clears throat> so even with all of that weight, he was willing to give attention and time to his son. You know why? Because he was a dad. That's what dads do. And our heavenly father, Yahweh Tzavoth, is our heavenly father, and he's like that too. And so Hannah knew that that name, Yahweh Tzavoth, not only expressed God's transcendence, his greatness, that he's way up there. She knew this name also expressed his eminence, that he is close here, close by my side, that he cares about me. That Yahweh Tzavoth, she knew, is a relational name that communicates God's fierce and loving care of his own people. She knew that. This name talks about his fierce care for me, for me. Do you see why I wanted to come back to this name a second time? Didn't even touch any of that the first time. Hannah's story, I think, tells us something important. It tells us that although Hannah, <clears throat> I'm sorry, although God is indeed the Lord of the armies in heaven and on earth, that he's also the Lord of each individual person and all of those that are weary and in need. And that in your darkest hour, in any hour, but in your darkest hour, God will notice you and he will hear you and he will give you the attention you need as if you were the only person alive in the universe. That's how much he cares. Your life and your troubles are never too insignificant for him. Never too insignificant to notice. That's why in the words of Francis Schaeffer, oh, there it is, in Francis Schaeffer, with God, there are no little people. There are no little people. Can I share some scripture that speak to that reality? She wasn't drinking in service, but I am. But that's water, trust me. <laughs> I need something strong to get me through the service. It's just water. Psalm 138.6, 138.6, though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Psalm 139, 17-18, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. How often you think about me. I can't even number it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 19 and 20, he said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I read this week that the average number of hairs on the average person is 7.66 quadrillion. That's what it looks like. That is how many hairs are on the average person. And here that means two, two, a couple of things. Number one, I know how many are on my head. So some of you have even like 10 times more than that, and that makes that the average. Um, and the other, my other thought is, is just a few, a few of us would just be happy to have a million more. Uh, could you just give me a million more? But the point that Jesus is making that with is that God knows us so personally, so personally. In Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A couple weeks ago, I told you that the Greek equivalent of Yahweh Tzabot occurs a few times in the New Testament. I don't know if you remember that. Almost exclusively in the book of Revelation, where it emphasizes his sovereign control and that he will have the ultimate victory over evil. But it occurs one time outside of Revelation, and it's in the book of James, a book written by the brother of Jesus. And it's something that he writes to bosses who underpaid their workers. And here's what it says in James 5, 4. Look, the pay you have held back from the workers who mowed your field cries out against you. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. So here's what that's saying. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, knew better than anybody because he knew Jesus. That God sees the powerless and the disadvantaged, those who are on the outside, and he acts on their behalf. In other words, Yahweh Tzaboth hears the cry of the little guy. He hears the cry of the little guy. And I want you to know that Yahweh Tzaboth knows you by name. If we went a couple of chapters further in the Samuel story, you will see God call to Samuel by name. Not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but four times calls him by name. In Exodus 33, 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked me because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And I love Jesus. We're going to come back to him and focus on him a lot next week in the 10th chapter of John's gospel. Here's what Jesus said. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by he calls us by name, and he leads them out. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down. I not only know them by name, but I lay down my life for them. And so if, if that's why I love next week. We're going to get to focus on Jesus the whole time. If you have any reservations, like was, did Hannah get it right that Yahweh Tzaboth cares about little old me and, and running this universe, I want you to know, I just point to Jesus and I point that last phrase, I lay down my life for the sheep. 2,000 years ago, Yahweh Tzaboth, the commander of heaven's armies, entered into our creation. He was born as a helpless infant in a barn in an insignificant puny village to a poor peasant woman in a small occupied nation in the backwater of the Roman Empire. That's where he came into human history. And he lived, think about this, the first 30 years of his life in a small, insignificant village in total obscurity. That's 90% of his life. He lived in total obscurity. So I want you to know, Jesus knows what it is like to be perceived as small and invisible and insignificant. He knows what that feels like. And here's what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus. In Isaiah 53, 2-3. He had no beauty or majesty to, attack, majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. He knows what it's like to be held in low esteem. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God in human flesh, Yahweh Tzaboth, we'll talk about this some more next week, 
shows up in Jerusalem riding on, the, on a donkey on Palm Sunday, so the day we're celebrating today, to the accolades of thousands of people. And the same thousands of people who a few days later are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him, kill him, take him away. And remember when he got arrested and Peter cut off the sword of one of the men arresting him and Jesus said to him, Peter, put the sword away. Do you not know that I, he didn't say Yahweh Tzavoth, but he said, I can call 60,000 angels right now to defend me, but I'm not here for that. Because he came for you and he came for me. He came to die on the cross to give himself, to save me from my sin and to bring me back to himself because what he was most after was me and you and my heart and your heart. I love that. That's why Romans 5.8 says of his death on the cross, God demonstrates his own love for us. If you want him to demonstrate his love, this is it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4.9 this is how he, God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we may have life through him. And as Isaiah continues, in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's a strong word. He was crushed for my sins. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds I have been healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, I'm just curious. Um, compared to this grand universe, <clears throat> do you feel small and insignificant sometimes? Maybe even unworthy? Ever feel unworthy? Or maybe you find yourself right now in the midst of a difficult, challenging circumstance that's been ongoing, that you don't understand it, you can't seem to extricate yourself from it, and you look, you feel overlooked and unappreciated by God, maybe even just unseen by Him. And I, here's why I love this story. I want you to remember this story. I want you to take it with you in your heart, okay? Remember this story. I want you to know that you are not only visible, but you are known. You are cared for. You're named. You are precious to Him. That Yahweh Tzavoth knows every detail of your life, he even knows right now how many hairs are on your head after you brushed your hair, combed it this morning. Uh, I don't comb mine. I don't want to lose anymore. But you, after all of that, he knows how many fell out and how many you still have. That's how he looks at you. And he knows every single hurt in your heart. He knows the pain and the cry of your heart. He knows all of that. So may this name, Yahweh Tzavoth, in this story, I hope it's captured your heart the way it has mine. And may you carry this story and this name with you throughout your life. I want to close with a prayer for you and a prayer for me. It's a prayer that was prayed by Paul in Ephesians 3. May you, may we have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. Is that a great prayer? So may that be the prayer of our lips. Would you stand with me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of risk with something. I've been ending a lot of these with a prayer. And I've got one this week. It's a little long. That's the risk. It's not too long, but a little longer than any I've ever done. It's a prayer by Marissa Donnelly that I've adapted. And it would be a prayer to Yahweh Tzavoth. 
And when we finish, if this prayer is meaningful to you and you'd like to have a copy and keep it in your Bible, they're on the back, the info booth on the way out. But would you join me in praying this? Yahweh Sabaoth, today I feel so small. I feel my worries crashing in on me. I feel my insecurities ringing loud in my head as if there's a bell being slammed against the side of my brain. I feel tired. I feel lost. I feel a heavy weight on my shoulders and I can't seem to shake it. I look around and I see so much pain, so much suffering, people I love, people I know, strangers on the street, and I can't help but feel so small. I can't help but put my own worries into perspective. I can't help but feel like my prayers are purposeless. Because why would you waste a single minute on my tiny worries when there are so many people in need? Why would you care about me when there are far greater problems in the world than mine? I feel insignificant. I feel like my small prayers can't make a difference. I feel so small, God, so small compared to you and compared to the people who are broken by far worse than I've ever experienced. Where is my place in all of this? All I know is when I feel small, I must turn to you, Yahweh Tzavoth, because your love is big far bigger and greater and stronger than I will ever be. So Father, right now I ask you, I ask for you to remind me that no matter how tiny I feel, I am still loved by you. Encourage me when I feel small. Show me that even though my problems may be minuscule in comparison to the rest of the world, but to you they matter. They will always matter. Remind me that even on the days when I feel so lost or small, you are standing beside me, showing me that in your eyes I am worthy. I'm sorry for doubting your presence, for assuming that you aren't here for me, even if my worries feel insignificant. I'm sorry for thinking that who I am and what I fear isn't important to you because I know that you love all your children. Thank you for reminding me of my worth and who I am in your arms. In the name of Yahweh Tzavoth, I pray. And God's people said, amen. Is that not a great prayer? So grab one on the way out if you think you might need that. So let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this reality that you, you're the Lord of heaven's armies, the sovereign Lord, that you are in charge ultimately of all things. But more than that, that you care about me individually and that you will bow and tune your ear to hear the things I'm talking to you about because I need that at times. So I thank you of this truth, that, that this name is not just a name of your greatness, but also of your goodness and how close you are to me. Um, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that really needed this, that was feeling insignificant, I pray that they would leave, your spirit would have really imprinted on their heart how significant they are. Lord, help us to live in this reality, that you're not only in control of everything, but that you care about everything in my life, just like any parent does about their children. I thank you that you're a good and loving father. And I pray in the name of Jesus, the commander of heaven's armies who died for us. I pray in his name. Amen. All right, 12. Um, I am sorry if I was not able to communicate with the passion I feel in here if it didn't come out out there. Because I love this story. Um, the things that are coming out these days <laughs> are other things. You know, when you cough and all that. But I'm on the upswing. That's great. Um, but I really, I hope you leave with a sense of how much God loves you. So, 12, as always, you are sent, and you are sent on your way out to grab one of these.
and to invite somebody you know to Easter next week, okay? Grab one of the books for the Holy Week, grab a prayer, and just God bless you because he loves you, okay? All right, you're sent, well, 